Up front next, we are following several breaking news stories this hour. First, the United States striking back. New video just into CNN right now showing the aftermath of 85 targets hit in Iraq and Syria. President Biden warning that this is just the beginning of the strikes. And more breaking news, mass confusion surrounding Ukraine's military. President Zelensky calling the fired head of his entire military the commander-in-chief. What's going on? And postponed. The Department of Justice election interference case against Donald Trump is delayed indefinitely. Why? We've got the details. Let's go out front. This is CNN Breaking News. And good evening. I'm Aaron Burnett. And we do begin tonight with the breaking news. America strikes. The Biden administration carrying out a mass series of airstrikes in both Iraq and Syria. And I want to show you some new video that we have just gotten in of what's happening there on the ground. This is the aftermath of one of the strikes. The U.S. hit, we understand, 85 targets. You can actually see this uh, in the air. You can see the strikes on the ground uh, from this video here. And you can hear... And you can hear it as well as those uh, on those impacts. U.S. hitting Iranian-backed militants uh, who were responsible for the drone attack in which three American soldiers were killed and dozens more were injured uh, in Jordan. According to the U.S. Central Command, U.S. forces hit seven locations. According to the White House, the strikes lasted 30 minutes. Now, they are characterizing this as successful. But I want to be clear when we say that, that would seem to imply that there's success and they're done and it's nowhere near the truth. President Biden is clearly warning tonight that this is just the beginning. Statement that he put out says, quote, our response began today. It will continue at times and places of our choosing. The United States does not seek conflict in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. Now, while Biden says the U.S. does not seek conflict in the Middle East, the leader of one of the Iranian-backed militias today vowed to continue attacking U.S. targets. All right, this breaking news coverage here continues as we see what happens in these early hours of the morning in Iraq and Syria. We've got a team of correspondents, military analysts, standing by for our breaking coverage. I want to begin, though, with Oren Lieberman because he is live at the Pentagon. Oren, you have been learning more and more details about these strikes. What do you know now? The U.S. carried out strikes across seven different locations, strikes that were carried out over a period of 30 minutes. Four of those locations were in Syria. Three of them were in Iraq. It appears one of them you're seeing here, although at this time the Pentagon and the Defense Department not confirming the locations, but Qaim in Iraq is a location they have struck before. Meanwhile, the director of the Joint Staff here, General D.A. Sims, says that they are confident in the success of their strikes and in the targeting. In terms of the list of targets, 85 different targets across those seven locations, more than 125 precision munitions used. In terms of what was struck, it's not just weaponry, but it's also command and control centers, intelligence centers, logistics hub, a clear attempt here to go after the ability of these Iranian-backed militias to continue carrying out attacks on U.S. forces. There is no expectation that the attacks will absolutely stop, but the goal of the administration here was to send a more powerful message than has been sent in the past. This is the first time we've seen the U.S. carry out strikes in Iraq and Syria simultaneously. So that's part of the more powerful message we were expecting and the more powerful strikes. The U.S. says they did see secondary explosions at some of the locations that were struck, indicating they did hit weapons facilities in their attempt to go after some of the weapons that have been used to attack U.S. forces. The Biden administration, the president himself, the defense secretary have promised there would be a powerful response 
after its drone strike killed three U.S. service members and injured scores more in Jordan on Sunday. So five days ago, the U.S. held Iran ultimately responsible, but it was a decision to strike the Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria, the groups that have been carrying out these attacks. That was the thrust of tonight's operation. As you point out, President Joe Biden said this isn't the end. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin echoed those words when he said in a statement shortly after the attack, this is the start of our response. So very much putting on the table that though these strikes were larger than others we have seen, there is more to come. Aaron, I will also point out that the U.S. used two B-1 bombers in this case. Those are heavy bombers, much larger than the F-15 and F-16 fighter jets we have generally seen used to carry out these strikes, able to carry a larger payload. That in and of itself is part of the message here that the U.S. is willing to go further than it's gone before in going after these militias and in targeting these militias. Uh, the U.S. also says there are likely casualties as a result of these strikes. I think that was to be expected, but in terms of how many and where, the U.S. says it went after Islam, uh, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and we'll find out more at the conclusion of a battle damage assessment. All right. All right. Thank you very much, Orrin. Orrin, is, Orrin you get more. Uh, obviously, we're going to br bring you back. Orrin's there at the Pentagon talking to his sources. Uh, so we'll, we'll let him continue to do that. I want to go to the White House now and MJ Lee. So, MJ, you know, here we are, as, as Orrin's saying, uh, a, a true show of force, right? B-1 bombers coming from the U.S. Uh, to do this, not using F-16s, uh, F-15s. Uh, there's a very clear message here and a very clear message that this is just the beginning. So what does that mean? in terms of this being just the beginning. What are you learning? For right now, Aaron, the White House is trying to make clear that they believe the strikes so far have been very successful. Uh, but importantly, Aaron, a senior administration official telling me that the U.S. strikes are targeting places outside of Iran and not inside Iran. And in many ways, uh, that is not at all success. Uh, that is not at all uh, surprising, uh, given to what extent U.S. officials in recent days have been telegraphing just how escalatory that would be to strike targets inside of Iran. And they have said that that would actually be akin to basically starting a war with Iran. And the White House has said repeatedly, we do not want to start a war with Iran. Uh, now, in terms of the timing and why the strikes uh, took place uh, tonight, we are actually told uh, that they had known for some days that they would begin tonight. Uh, but that weather really played a very big role in all of this. Uh, they wanted to make sure that they could avoid any unnecessary casualties, though, as Oren just mentioned, there are expected to be some casualties. They also wanted to avoid cloud cover. In other words, put simply, they waited for good weather to maximize uh, their chances of success and having the best chance of having these uh, precision strikes be as precise uh, as possible. Now, the president, of course, uh, has been updated uh, throughout these strikes. He is currently at his home uh, in Wilmington. Uh, we know that these strikes uh, had everything to do with the three Americans that were killed last weekend, and he made very clear in his statement, as you mentioned, uh, he said, our response began today, but it will continue at times and places of our choosing. But as you can imagine, Aaron, for right now, U.S. officials not indicating in any way when or where those future strikes will be. Aaron. All right. MJ, thank you very much. And as MJ talks to her sources, she will come back as well. I want to go now to retired Army Lieutenant General Mark Kirtling and Kareem Sajapur, Iran policy expert at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Thanks so much to both of you. General, we now have the first video in of these strikes, uh, at least of one of them, indications of some secondary explosions, right, which could mean, uh, you know, obviously weaponry or, you know, explosives that were struck. Um, you're, you we're understanding there are B-1 bombers involved that can carry heavy payloads. Uh, 
that instead of F-16s or F-15s, from what you know, and obviously we're told this is just the beginning, but what we know so far, 125 precision munitions using B-1 bombers flying all the way from the U.S. mainland, what does it say to you? Well, first of all, Aaron, I, I will confirm that that photo or those films you're showing right now are definitely secondary explosions from an ammo cache, just the way the rockets are coming off. But when you're talking about a B-1 bomber, that, that bomber can drop more bombs than even a B-52. Many people will find that unimaginable. But the strike took 30 minutes. That tells me there wanted to be a, uh, a simultaneous engagement on all those targets to somewhat put uh, the, the various targets that they hit uh, in just an unbelievable state, how fast they can be hit by this one load of, of weaponry. Secondly, uh, anyone that's saying this is a proportional response really doesn't know what they're talking about. This is the first stage, and it's more than proportional, of sending a signal not just to the, uh, the uh, popular mobilization forces on the ground in Syria and Iraq, but also to the Iranian government. This is telling them, we are coming after you. We will not put up with these continual harassing attacks that, truthfully, we've been putting up with before the 7th of October. This is something the Iranian government has been supporting for years, if not decades, against U.S. forces and against Israel as well. This is the reason for those, uh, for those PMS to exist, is to continue to be the, the axis of attacks against the Israel and all Western forces. So I believe what we're seeing right now is the first first set, the first set of this campaign. There will be more. It will fall into an action by the United States, uh, an anticipated reaction by the Iranian government, as well as some of the PMS, and then a counteraction to follow on that. I think it will last at least uh, uh, several days, if not weeks, but it, it will show them that we're serious about protecting our forces in the Middle East. Kareem, obviously, as General Hurtling's referring to, right, the, the, the response of the Iranian government is what matters, even though these strikes are in Iraq and Syria, specifically against uh, Iranian-backed militias. Uh, you know, Reuters had reported a couple days ago that the IRGC, uh, the, the, you know, the uh, elite uh, Iranian uh, force, had been pulling officers out of Syria. They were saying because of Israeli strikes that had been successful, but that they had taken losses, raises the question perhaps of whether they anticipated something like this. We have no idea who these casualties are or what happened. So how do you expect uh, the Iranian government, Kareem, to reply, uh, respond now? You know, Aaron, this month marks the 45th anniversary of the Iranian, Iranian Revolution of 1979. So we basically have a 45-year case study of Iranian conduct. And I would say that on one hand, this is a regime which is deeply committed to its ideology. It wants to evict America from the Middle East. It wants to replace Israel with Palestine. It wants to help bring down the U.S.-led world order. But they're also deeply committed to staying in power. They're not suicidal. They're very good at testing U.S. resolve, um, uh, constantly testing U.S. red lines. I suspect that now what they're going to do given this massive U.S. response, is to lay low a little bit. Um, I, I, I suspect we won't see um, attacks in the near term on U.S. troops. But once we're again distracted, whether it's by our presidential elections or the war in Ukraine, mm. I think they will start to test us again because, again, they're committed to their ideology. Uh, General Hartling, what do you make of the fact that it appears that the IRGC, again, that Reuters report, had been trying to pull out senior officers from Syria uh, and, and, and obviously we have no idea if they, you know, actually even succeeded in doing that. We do know that there are casualties. The U.S. government says that. We don't know anything more than that right now. Uh, we don't know how many and we don't know who. 
Yeah, well, I'd agree, first of all, completely with Mr. Sajipur. It, it, this is a continuous action by the Iranian government. The pulling out of the senior ranking officers doesn't mean they're pulling out the members of the Quds Force, a yep. force that General McChrystal once called a combination of our CIA and Joint Special Operations Command. They are continuing to train these multiple PMS. And literally, Aaron, we talk a lot about one or two of them and name them by name, but there are dozens of these gang-like organizations that aren't really soldiers. They're just gangs. Uh, they've been supplied by weapons and some training. They're not soldiers, but they they cause problems uh, wherever they're located. Uh, and they're doing the bidding of the Iranian government. So, you know, if, if we think that this is going to stop all action by any of the PMS in yeah. Syria or Iraq, or Iraq, I think we're going to be mistaken. You know, we used to have a saying in, in Iraq that, you know, just because you think you're winning against the insurgents or Al-Qaeda doesn't mean it's going to prevent every car bomb from happening. So there may be one of these PMS that may launch another drone strike after this devastating attack tonight and yeah. what I think is going to happen over the next couple of days. And Kareem, when you hear what the U.S. used, those B-1 bombers, a statement in and of itself, they could have used less, they didn't more than 125 precision munitions, and then they have a whole list of things that they hit, weapons stockpiles, uh, weapons caches, as you could see from what uh, General Hurtling's saying we're seeing here, right, because the rocket's going up after the impact. How much do you think what we are seeing tonight will actually degrade the capabilities of the Iranian-backed groups? I think no doubt it will degrade the capabilities, um, but you know Iran has been playing this game for a long time, four and a half decades. So there's been instances when, for example, Israel is significantly degraded Lebanese Hezbollah, one of Iran's proxies, or Israel is degraded Iran's proxies in the Palestinian territories. But they use their oil resources. Iran uses its oil resources to to rebuild those capabilities. So I think we have to say that you know this is a this is a cold war that Iran has been fighting against us for a long time. They're going to continue to do so. What I would say, though, Aaron, is that yeah. what's unique about this Iranian regime is that they're probably the most menacing regime beyond their borders, but one of the most unstable and unpopular regimes at home. And so that also needs to be part of our strategy to advance the cause of political change inside Iran. Otherwise, we're simply going to be responding to the symptoms of this regime. Right. We think about in the past 12 to 18 yeah, months, so many of the brave things. Are, yeah. Yeah. If I can, Aaron, on that, that's a great point, because what we're seeing and what we're enamored with are these kinds of kinetic strikes. But there are there is going to be more. I think this multi-level operation that the Biden administration has formulated yeah. is going to include covert action, cyber attacks and other things that we may not see. All right. Thank you both so very much. I appreciate it. And of course, uh, at least in this specific instance, the reason that this is happening tonight is because of what is happening in Israel and Gaza. And I want to go to uh, Tel Aviv, where our Nick Robertson is out front. Uh, Nick, uh, this is this is part of this escalation, you know, since October 7th of what we've seen, the fears of a broader war. And here we are bit by bit. How dangerous is this moment for the region and for the world uh, when you consider there will be strikes, there then will be a response, there then will be a response to that. 
Yeah, there's always dangers for miscalculations. I think what post-October 7th has shown and what the United States is responding to in Iraq and Syria tonight, and your guests have just been talking exactly about it, Iran says that it doesn't want to have a direct fight with the United States, and the White House says it too, does not want to have a direct fight with Iran. But the reality is Iran is at war with the United States, and post-October 7th, it's become very, very clear, if anyone had sort of failed to pay attention over the past couple of decades, um, they could have blinked uh, during that period where Iran, having set up uh, and established very strongly Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, they've gone on to, to stand up uh, and pr make some very strong and capable militias in Iraq, in Syria, uh, in, in Yemen with the Houthis over the past decade or so, as well as supplying and training uh, Hamas in, in Gaza. So the, the period that we're in at the moment is where we can see, the world can see, all those strings leading back to Tehran. And at the, at the moment, it's convenient um, to avoid escalation, not to fight them by going to the ends of those strings to Iran. It's convenient to target the Houthis uh, when they're about to launch missiles to take out uh, ships in the Red Sea. It's convenient to target these militias and their weapons stockpiles, as we're clearly seeing now in Iraq and Syria. But I, I think the bigger picture is, ultimately, um, that threat, as your panel yeah. have said, um, doesn't go away. Iran's objectives vis the United States remain exactly the same. That problem just doesn't go away. All right, Nick Robertson, thank you very much. Alive in these early hours of Saturday morning in Tel Aviv, I want to go to Major General Spider Marks uh, at the wall right now. And, and General Marks, uh, just to understand exactly what we're seeing here, right? Strikes targeting Iranian-backed proxies. No strikes inside Iran, notable and important. Uh, can you just uh, walk us through exactly the significance of what we're, what we're seeing here right now? Yeah, Aaron, at least what we know right now is the strikes took place essentially in this area. We don't know precisely where. 85 individual targets, seven clusters, if you will. What's significant is the United States did not strike into Iran. But look, you know, the, the historic trade routes that have existed in this part of the world forever have come from Iran, have come from Iran, and they migrate through in this particular area, this Shia arc, if you will, this access of resistance is what we've now called it. So the United States, I think, very wisely has chosen not to strike into Iran. But as Nick just indicated, let there be no doubt, the United States truly is at war with Iran in a tactical level right now. There is a strategic competition that's taking place. And right now, the United States is trying to assert itself and to get into a leaning forward posture. So we're just not responding to what the Iranians are doing. We need to take the initiative. And this is what this first strike is all about. All right. So the B-1 bombers that were used yeah. to carry out the strikes, can you tell us more about their capabilities? I mean, obviously, you know, we understand the payload they can carry is significantly greater than that of an F-15 or an F-16. But, but what, what is the, the, the capability here? Yeah, two things in particular identified here, and you just mentioned one, 24 cruise missiles plus a number of gravity munitions, gravity bombs, very, very capable a lot of experience inside the cockpit. This thing's been around for over 40 years. It's got legs that are going to go out for another 10 to 12 years. But also, unlimited range. You can keep refueling this thing. So these bombers, I assume, flew from the United States 
refueled en route, very precise targets, made it very crystal clear that this is what they're going after. And the United States chose not to use fighter aircraft that had a dual, could have had a dual purpose of supporting forces on the ground. So this sends a very clear, unequivocal message. This is a bomber. We're not going to linger. We're not going to support other folks on the ground. We're coming directly after you. All right, so what else stands out to you about what, we, what you've seen so far, what we understand so far happened? Yeah, the, the challenge that we're seeing right now is that the government has indicated, our government has indicated this is a multi-tiered attack. The challenge is, what does that really look like? I would hope it would be a whole-of-government type of attack, attack. We've got economic sanctions we can continue to pour on. We've got incredible cyber capabilities. We've got great diplomatic capabilities. And also, the multi-tiered, in my mind, doesn't have a time horizon. We should not be in the business of saying we're going to be there another couple of days. The questions will be asked. How long will this take? It'll take as long as it takes. The United States needs to be able to assess the damage that's taken place so far. And then the target set's going to evolve as a result of that. So this thing will cascade and will escalate in terms of volume, I would hope, over the course of time until at some point we say we've achieved our objectives. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, General. Thank you. All right. And next, the breaking news. Ukraine's Zelensky now calling the top general that he fired days ago his, quote, commander in chief. What is actually happening here? Did Zelensky suddenly change his mind? Also breaking this hour, the start of Trump's election interference trial, that crucial trial we have just learned has now been postponed indefinitely. We'll explain exactly what happened. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. All right, tonight we have more breaking news, a stunning move from the Ukrainian President Zelensky. After firing his top general, the man who has commanded the war against Putin, President Zelensky then did a seemingly total about face, calling General Valery Zeluzhny his, quote, commander-in-chief today. The two coming face-to-face for a war cabinet meeting. Now, Zelensky was expected to announce Zeluzhny's replacement. Fred Plaikin is out front. Since Moscow's forces invaded Ukraine almost two years ago, General Valery Zaluzhny has been the man behind the military effort to push the Russians back. A successful effort, but one requiring great sacrifices in Ukrainian blood. Zaluzhny, a respected commander close to his troops. 
The path to our victory is very hard, he said at a military funeral, and the price for this victory is the lives of our warriors, the best citizens of Ukraine who have stood in the defense of the country with weapons in their hands. But after Ukraine's large-scale counteroffensive failed last year, Kiev's forces making little headway while suffering major losses, relations between Zaluzhny and Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, appeared to fray. Zelensky seemingly critical of his top general's strategy. I have working relations with Zaluzhny. He has to answer for results on the battlefield as commander-in-chief together with the general staff, Zelensky said. There are many questions. Zaluzhny remains extremely popular. A December Ukrainian poll finding nearly 90% supported him, compared to around 60 for Zelensky. Another point of contention between the two, further mobilization of soldiers to beef up the armed forces, but also to give troops fighting on the front lines for months a breather. Zaluzhny saying it's going too slow. As for the local mobilization offices, as of now, frankly speaking, I am not satisfied with the work of the mobilization offices. If I were satisfied with their work, we would not discuss this bill right now. But Zelensky is critical of further mobilization, an unpopular measure for many Ukrainians. And what, everyone? Take everyone away because they don't have money, this man asks? That really smells like slavery. As harsh as it may sound, in my opinion, it's necessary, this man says, because it's really a matter where, it seems to me, there is no choice. Outmanned and outgunned, Ukraine's army is struggling to hold the Russians up, while the president's relations with his top general seem damaged, possibly beyond repair. And Fred, you know, I mean, it is incredible what we're seeing here and, and just raises so many questions about what is really happening. I mean, what more are you learning about this this firing? I mean, it was, it was supposedly Jalusi was fired. I mean, everybody knew he was fired. And then we were just waiting for a formal decree. So what happened with that? Yeah, that's a big question that everyone is asking here in Kiev. And one of the things that we can also see, Aaron, is that all of political Kiev really is in a holding pattern, waiting whether or not this decree is going to come. And certainly the indications uh, that we were getting is that a decree would come by the end of this week. Well, now it's around 2.30 a.m. in the morning on Saturday, and still there is no decree. So right now it's absolutely unclear how much longer Valery Zaluzhny might be in office, if indeed he is still in office, and what in general his fate yeah. is going to be as the commander of Ukraine armed forces, Aaron. I mean, Fred, like, then today we see this happen, that there's a cabinet meeting and maybe we're going to find out who's going to take the place of Zaluzhny. And instead, Zelensky walks in and refers to Zaluzhny as his commander in chief. Is there any possibility that with all this firing yeah. that that he may not actually he may undo it? There is, there is always that possibility. Again, right now, it's absolutely unclear what Volodymyr, what Volodymyr Zelensky is going to do. The, the main thing that people are talking about here is possibly the big question is still, does Zelensky have a successor lined up, a possible one uh, for, uh, for Zaluzhny? And of course, we have been talking about the fact that there were two people who seemed to be in the running to be the successor. One of them, Kirillo Budanov, the head of military intelligence, one of them head of the land forces, Alexander Sersky. But again, at this mm. point in time, it's not clear whether it's going to be any one of those or whether or not Zelensky has indeed changed his mind. We simply don't know at this point in time. Certainly right now, we'll see what happens on the weekend and whether a decree might yet come, Aaron.
It's just an absolutely incredible moment. Fred Plaikin is in Kyiv, and we are so grateful for that. I have eyes and ears and on the ground there. And we have the breaking news, of course, coming from the Middle East. A video now in of the United States striking more than 85 targets in Iraq and Syria in just these past moments. Multiple casualties are reported. We don't yet have formal numbers for you on who or how many. The strikes were in retaliation for the drone attack on a military outpost in Jordan in which three American soldiers were killed and dozens injured. I want to go to Oneida Oliver Sanders. And it, you all heard from her earlier this week. Her daughter, U.S. Army Sergeant Kennedy Sanders, was one of the soldiers killed and, you know, obviously receiving her promotion after she died, Oneida. Uh, today... I know you're just learning about these strikes as well. These strikes are in response uh, to your daughter's death. What's your reaction to what we're seeing tonight, Oneida? Well, my initial reaction is that I'm just here to honor my daughter's legacy, honor her time in service, and honor the sacrifice that she made. That's my main focus is to lay my daughter to rest respectfully. She was honored today in that military ritual, the dignified transfer, when she first came back to the United States. Can you tell us about or, or share what do you feel comfortable sharing, Oneida, about what happened at that ceremony today? The ceremony was very um, dignified, as stated. Um, it was very, it was a solemn ceremony, but everything was handled with respect. I was um, very pleased with the way they were handled. President Biden was there. Uh, he did appear emotional. What was your interaction with him today? I know you'd had a chance to speak a night before, but uh, you had a chance to be with him in person in this moment. Yes, ma'am. What, what, what was that interaction like? Um, every interaction that I have had with the president thus far has been very personable. Um, he's showed so much compassion and care for us um, and with what we're dealing with, um, his wife, Dr. Biden, as well. Um, we did keep it, you know, as light as we could. We shared laughs together. We talked mm -hmm. about her career as a teacher. And my stepdaughter was there, who's also a teacher. And they, they just had conversations about that as well. So it, it was a very um, light conversation. But at the same time, everyone showed their care and concern for what we're dealing with. Well, President Biden called you and your husband, I know, shortly after you learned of Kennedy's death. And uh, you shared a picture um, of, of, of yourselves when you had a chance to speak with him um, and a uh, video of that moment. Uh, how has it been even for you, Oneida, to, to deal with this now? I, I can only imagine that today had to have in so many ways been surreal, that you were actually standing there with your daughter coming Thank home you. like this? She did, she absolutely Yes, um, so many thoughts went through my head. Um, the fact, just the fact of knowing that when I attended her farewell ceremony in Columbus, Georgia in August, and here we are now in January and she's returning to me in a box. Um, just the thought of that did break me down just a little bit when I saw her and her friends along with her um, be taken from the plane. But um, we we have so much support 
around us, all of the dignitaries that came out today and offered their condolences. I felt that they were all sincere. Um, even some of them were very touched, and you could tell that they were touched. Um, some of them were teary-eyed as well. And I just felt the, the support and concern from everyone that was here today. Oneida, thank you so much. Certainly in my thank thoughts, you. and I know everyone, everyone who sees you now. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And out front next, as we continue to cover this breaking news out of the Middle East, uh, we also have a major development in the election interference case uh, for the special counsel, Jack Smith. We have learned that it has been postponed indefinitely in terms of the court date. So what does this mean? What has happened? Plus a shocking revelation, the Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is admitting she had a personal relationship with her top prosecutor. We'll tell you exactly what it means. Breaking news, the federal election interference case against Donald Trump is now postponed indefinitely. The trial was scheduled to start March 4th, but the ongoing appeals about Trump's claims of presidential immunity are making that start date impossible. And Ryan Goodman is out front. So, Ryan, um, here we are, uh, that this has been postponed indefinitely. And I guess, you know, they're awaiting an immunity ruling. Uh, But what does that mean? I mean, I understand it's we knew it was going to be postponed. Right. I mean, that was understandable at this point because we hadn't gotten the ruling. But nonetheless, indefinitely does sort of have a heavy weight to it. It most certainly does, uh, because the judge, Judge Tutkin, could have put down another uh, somewhat provisional <laughs> date for start of trial, but she didn't, uh, which gives us a sense of just how suspended uh, the action currently is as we await the D.C. Circuit. And as she even suggested, if and when she gets the mandate from the DC circuit. So uh, it could be that by the time they issue a mandate, her calendar is already full. Uh, So it really is just gonna be waiting to see when that trial could start and if it could even start in the spring or the summer at all. Which, I mean, is incredible that we've reached this moment. I mean, advisors to the former president are telling CNN, you know, given what you're saying, uh, that they think this is a win for Trump and the campaign. Is it that clear cut? I'm not sure it's that clear cut, but it's definitely a good day for him. Uh, This is good news for him. Uh, The reason that it might not be that clear cut is that in a certain sense, the district court is sending a signal to the DC circuit. Uh, She's basically saying in a certain sense, uh, this is is very disruptive uh, to the trial. Now I've had to suspend everything. So that puts a little bit extra pressure on the DC circuit to rule. And so we might still see a ruling from the DC circuit then the Supreme Court decides whether or not it wants to act, and then everything could be put could be put back on track. So, definitely a good uh, day for President Trump, but not necessarily out of the woods. So, in the context of what this means for the other trials against Trump, obviously, you know, you've got the question marks in Georgia that that are out there right now. That that could mean Alvin Bragg's hush money case, uh, which is the one that had been seen as the most politicized, uh, but it is a criminal case. That could be the one that goes. First, after all of this, right, when he had, had sort of acquiesced and moved it so that that wouldn't be the case. But it looks like it's conceivable that it is first now. I would put my money on the idea that that's going to be the first case. And it might be the only case. It might be the only criminal case that's actually brought to trial before the election. Wow. But it's definitely it looks like it's going to be first. And I think that's another windfall uh, for President Trump. Because, as you say, it's it's certainly the weakest of the criminal cases. It has the least gravity to it, it 
might not even come with a real serious risk of imprisonment. It's that weak of a case in that sense. And it's also predicated in part on witnesses like Michael Cohen. So it's the case that if he were to wish which case would go first, it would be that one. All right, Ryan, thank you very much. And I mentioned the Georgia case as well in this context, and there was a bombshell admission in that case today. The Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, finally admitting that she did have a, quote, personal relationship with her top prosecutor. The announcement coming almost a month after the scandal first broke. Now, Willis filed a 176-page court filing. In it, she argues there are no grounds to dismiss the case or to remove her from the prosecution. So she's fighting back. And she's countering accusations that she financially benefited from the relationship with Nathan Wade. There are a lot of specifics as to why. And Paula Reed is out front in Washington. Paula, you've had a chance to go through 176 pages. What have you learned in there? A lot, Erin. As you can see, it is voluminous. This is the first time that they are publicly responding to these allegations. Let's go through some of the things that we've learned. First of all, we know Nathan Wade was appointed in 2021. But... He revealed today that what he describes as a personal relationship with Bonnie Willis actually began in 2022, so after his appointment, and they say mm. it grew out of their pre-existing professional relationship. But Aaron, as you know, the accusations from former President Trump and his co-defendants are not limited to concerns about a personal relationship. They also point to the fact that Wade has earned hundreds of thousands of dollars while overseeing this high-profile case. And during that time, he and Willis have gone on vacations, and he has at times paid for some of those expenses. But today, Wade denied that his earnings had been shared with or provided to Willis, saying, quote, at times, I have made and purchased travel for District Attorney Willis and myself from my personal funds. At other times, District Attorney Willis has made and purchased travel for she and I from her personal funds. So it's basically saying, when we travel together, we split the check. Now, Willis, in her part of this filing, she insists that none of this meets the legal requirements for her to have to be disqualified from this case. She insists that none of the substantive decisions that have been made here, the charging decisions, uh, the plea deals that have been brokered, none of these have been influenced by their personal relationship. So all of this sets up a February 15th hearing, Erin, where the judge overseeing this case will consider this disqualification question. Now, among the witnesses who could be called, Willis and Wade and some of their colleagues. So not surprising, uh, they are seeking to have that hearing canceled. All right. Thank you very much, Paula. So I want to go to Michael Isikoff, the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News and the co-author of Find Me the Votes. It details the inside story of the case led by Fannie Willis against Trump in Georgia. So, Michael, you've spent an enormous amount of time with her while writing your book. You've spoken to Wade as well. Uh, were you surprised at all by the revelation that they had uh, this, this personal relationship? I guess they say this goes back to 2022. Very significant that they're saying after he was appointed, right? right. So he wasn't appointed because of it. I want to emphasize that's what they're saying here. Um, but were you surprised that the relationship was even going on? Um, I think it's been pretty clear for the last few weeks that there was a relationship there, a uh, intimate relationship of uh, Fonnie Willis all but acknowledged that when she gave that speech at the at the black church uh, on Martin Luther King Day. She didn't quite say it, but if you read between the lines. But look, uh, you know, I think this filing today could go a long way to diffusing this whole controversy. If you take a step back, the, the motion filed by Ashley Merchant, the lawyer for Michael Roman, one 
one of the defendants, basically argued that there was a financial and personal conflict of interest here because number one, um, uh, Fonnie Willis hired somebody she was having an intimate relationship with, paid him lots of money, and then used that money so that they could right. all go on lavish vacations. So if, in fact, the relationship had not begun at the time she hired him and they shared the costs of these trips, that kind of really uh, uh, knocks down the predicates for some of the motion. The idea was that somehow they wanted to prolong this case so they could, so Nathan Wade could make more money to take Fonnie Willis on lavish vacations. It was speculative from the start. You add these two facts uh, and it kind of like uh, undercuts the basis for the motion. There's going to be a hearing February 15th. We'll see whether the uh, judge wants to get into an evidentiary hearing. Yeah. Um, but I'd be surprised at this point if he does. All right. Trump was pushing these accusations against Willis and Wade, of course. Here's some of what he said. She paid her boyfriend, a lawyer who had no experience as a lawyer and no experience doing what? Almost a million dollars. And then they decided to go on beautiful Norwegian cruise lines, trips all over the place. He was a very generous person with our money. Now, again, they're saying it didn't start till after he took the position. Um, and mm -hmm. I would presume that if that's not the case, people are going to come forth out of the woodwork and make that clear, right? Yeah. So they're, they're, they're swearing to the fact that it didn't. So, um, but you write in your book, that Wade was not even at the top of Willis's list. So this would mean not only did the relationship start after he was hired, but in fact that she herself did not even want to hire him. Exactly. She had a hard time finding anybody to take the job as we write and find me the votes. I mean, she reached out to a number of high profile people. Roy Barnes, the former governor of Georgia, Gabe Banks, a former highly regarded federal prosecutor, and they turned her down. Why? As Roy, uh, as Roy Barnes is quoted in her book, in his, in our book, hypothetically speaking, do you want to have a bodyguard uh, following you around for the rest of your life? Yeah. They were worried about the threat threats that were coming from Trump supporters and, and something that Fonnie Willis was experiencing every day. And, 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 and just briefly, uh, so much so these threats that she had a body double. Yes, this is one of the most dramatic, extraordinary stories of this whole saga. The night of the indictment in August, where she makes that late night announcement, it was about midnight to all the press corps, the uh, Fulton County staff had picked up an assassination threat on a MAGA website. The best time to shoot her is when she leaves the building. So they arranged this whole elaborate decoy operation. Fonnie Willis goes back from the press conference to an office, her office takes off her black business suit and pearls, gets on, puts on sweats and a, a baseball cap and a body double, somebody on the staff who resembled Fonnie Willis, you know, puts on the business suit underneath a, over a Kevlar bulletproof vest and drives out. Fonnie Willis is smuggled out the back door of her office to an undisclosed oh. location. All right. Well, I hope people will read more because that is an incredible story. Uh, sad, but incredible. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm always glad to see you. Thank and next, you. lawyers for a group of Colorado voters are now preparing to make their case in front of the Supreme Court to keep Trump off the ballot. The, seat, the state secretary of state will take part in those arguments. That's a change. Uh, but she will now, and she's my guest, to explain why. And breaking news tonight about the Republican effort to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. Tonight, a flurry of preparation underway for the Supreme Court's oral arguments over whether Trump should be kicked off the Colorado ballot. 
Colorado's Secretary of State now officially taking a stand and urging the justices to disqualify Trump using the 14th Amendment as justification. Her legal team has just been granted 10 minutes on Thursday to make that argument before the highest court. And the Colorado Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, is now out front. All right, Secretary Griswold, I'm so glad to see you again. And obviously all eyes are going to be on your lawyers this coming Thursday when they're making your arguments to the justices. And uh, that's not a lot of time. I I know you'd wanted 15 minutes, so it's not as if you were asking for a lot, but you only have 10 minutes uh, to make the case. What are they going to lay out uh, before the Supreme Court? First off, Aaron, always great to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Uh, And our message is pretty simple. It's the idea, the clear statement that states can stop oath-breaking insurrectionists from appearing on our ballots. Uh, I imagine that the Supreme Court may focus its questions on the role of state law uh, and how the Constitution interacts with state law. And and regardless of the time, we want to make sure that Colorado's interest in our election system and election law is clearly protected at the United States Mm. Supreme Court. So, Secretary Griswold, just to be clear, you've been very careful on this issue. You didn't just come out and pound the table on this from the beginning. You know, for months, even on this show, you did stop short of saying Trump uh, should be kept off your state's ballot, uh, even though you did believe he incited an insurrection on January 6th. So you don't come to taking the stand and going before the Supreme Court lightly. Why? How did this happen that you've decided now to take a different and very clear public stand? Like you said, I've always believed that Trump incited the insurrection. But it was pretty clear that regardless of my personal thoughts, a court was going to decide, did his actions reach the level of disqualification under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? And a court has. Uh, The Colorado Supreme Court looked at all the district court's findings, spent a specialized amount of time and determined he did engage in insurrection. uh, And that on top of that, the Constitution applies to the president. There's no get out of jail free card for insurrection for Donald Trump. And honestly, Aaron, I think they got it right. And I'm making this uh, clear statement in protection of Colorado law because I think that's how the Constitution should work. Section three of the 14th Amendment is there to protect the country from insurrectionists like Donald Trump. And I hope that the United States Supreme Court looks at all the facts, all the case law, and the clear words of the United States Constitution in making their determination. Does the fact that there appear to be delays for the special counsel's case, I mean, that was supposed to start on March 4th. That is not going to start now. It's been postponed indefinitely. Ryan Goodman was just pointing out uh, that the judge there could have given another date, a provisional date, knowing that it could move, right? So the fact that it's indefinite is is significant, possibly. Uh, does that, I mean, obviously you made this decision before that, but do the delays that we've seen there waiting for this immunity ruling as they are in that case, did that play into your decision to take this stand? No, it did not. Uh, as soon as the Colorado Supreme Court made its decision, it was very clear to me that a court of competent jurisdiction at looking at how Colorado election law should apply to this scenario had made its clear decision. Donald Trump incited the insurrection. That was just part of his strategy to steal the 2020 election from the American people. I think he should be held accountable. 
Uh, and whether it's in the other cases you have talked about tonight or this case, he is a clear threat to this country. I believe he's one of the largest dangers to this country. And I, I look forward to oral arguments next Thursday. All right. We will, of course, all be watching for that on Thursday. Secretary Griswold, thanks so much. I'm glad to talk to you. Thank you. All right. And next, the breaking news. Republicans have just announced a major step on the impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. Breaking news, Republicans taking another step tonight towards impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Armanu Raju reporting that House leaders have officially scheduled the impeachment vote for next week. It will be either Tuesday or Wednesday, they say, something that has not been done in 148 years in the United States. And it is still not clear if the Republicans have the votes. House Speaker Mike Johnson can only afford to lose three. Retiring Congressman Ken Buck has already said on out front that he is leaning no. Thanks so much for joining us. AC360 begins right now.